Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are loved. Today, I want to I want to jump in, continue to jump into our our message gripped. And we will be on our third sermon in this title, Gripped. And I want to give you a quick summary of, of just quick sentences of each week and what we've discussed on each week. In week one, we spoke about how the Lord leads us with his hand. We spoke a lot about that. Go to week one and hear that message. And how the Lord holds us in his hand. And if you remember, I said something like this. I said that we've been deeply affected in which now has us gripped with deep affection towards him. Amen? And um, I, I believe that our deep affection is from a place of being deeply affected. How many of you can come in agreement with me at that? And then in week two, we jumped into what fuels your run. And we said, may you run with what? May you run with passion. And I say, may passion fuel your run. Not necessarily routine, not necessarily religion, not anything else but passion. May you run with passion. And it's time to examine what it is that fuels our run. Yes and amen. And um, today I'm going to take a little, uh, uh, twist it up a little bit in this grip series. And and I want to... I want to kind of jump into something that is, is, is related into, in regards to grit. But at the same time, it may sound different right off the bat. I want to open up our Bibles to 1 Samuel 16. If you're taking notes, you, that's a reference scripture that, that I'm going to start at. I'm going to pause and then I'm going to end with it again. But in between my starting point and my ending point, I'm going to be sharing a bunch of thoughts and, and verses and examples in between that. So just jump on the board with me and let's surf this wave. Amen? Amen. Um, so, so we're going to start off on 1 Samuel 16. And I want to talk about Saul's life. This is not Saul who later on becomes Paul on the road to Damascus, so on and so forth, and becomes this great apostle to the New Testament churches. That's not who I'm talking about this morning. Who I am talking about right now is King Saul. King Saul and the Apostle Paul are two different people. One's in the Old Testament, one's in the New Testament. King Saul was the first king of Israel. Necessarily, God didn't necessarily want a king to reign in Israel, but the people wanted to promote this king, and God anointed and elected Saul to be the king. Saul was a good-looking man. Saul was a very tall man, so tall that he said he, he had it from... from um, uh, his shoulders were above everyone else. So, so he had a, a head length higher than everyone else. He stood up, out in the midst of a crowd. I don't think just in height, but I think in just his character, in his person. Saul was a man that just stood out. When you're in a group of people, maybe you've ever experienced this, where there's someone there that you're in a group with, that, but that one stands out different than the rest of that group. That's who Saul was. Because of that, God saw it appropriate to anoint him as the first king of Israel. They anoint him as the first king. Saul did a lot of good. Everyone say good. He did a lot of favor. The, the, the favor of the Lord was upon Saul. You see, because if you've been churched for a long time, as soon as you hear King Saul, you automatically have this negative connotation on, on him, this negative vibe about Saul. Because you love David so much, you Christians, that you automatically think, I don't like the guy that tried to kill David. 
And that's how us Christians roll. Like David's our boy, David's our brother, I'm going to hang with David in heaven. So Saul messed with David, so I got beef with, with Saul. And that's cool that, that you guys feel that way. I mean, you got David's back. Trust me, David could defend himself. He's good. But, but Saul wasn't always that man that was running after David in caves. That man that was shooting arrows to kill him. That man that was swinging a sword to chop his head off. Saul was not always that man. You need to understand this, that Saul was a very respected Loving, he was an amazing leader, and um, he even in his life feared God and did the things of God. And because of that, God blessed his kingdom. God blessed his reign. A lot of good came from Saul. But, <laughs> un, or until. So I want to I wanna follow up on Saul's life when things kind of turned for Saul. When things kind of like went sour for him. And it did not start in chapter uh, uh, 15 necessarily. But 15 is pretty much what, what I, how I could describe it as, as the icing on the cake or the cherry on top. You guys get that? In the sense of where Saul was told by God and by the prophet Samuel, this is what God wants you to do. I, I really want you to understand the introduction so you could understand what happens to Saul's life. If not, you're going to be like, what, what? So, so God tells Saul, this is what I want you to do. I'm done with the Amalekites. I want to do away with them. So this is what Saul, you, and the army is going to do. You're going to go to the Amalekites, and you're going to destroy everything of them. You're going to destroy all of them and all their livestock. Nothing shall be alive from or of the Amalekite camp. So Saul's call there was to go and cause a widespread destruction upon the Amalekites. Just nothing of the Amalekite kingdom should have remained standing. So Samuel comes to check up on Saul. He comes to check up on him in 1 Samuel uh, chapter uh, 15. And as Samuel the prophet comes up to him and says, So what's up, Saul? How was it with the Amalekites? And Saul comes out of his tent with a smile on his face. And he's like, Samuel, you'd be so proud of me. <laughs> you'd be so proud of us. We destroyed the Amalekites. We have victory and we've conquered. We've done all these good things. And Samuel looks at Saul and says, right. So why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? Eh, why do I hear them? Those are not your sheep. I hear the livestock of the Amalekites. Oh, well, we kept them because those were the best livestock of the Amalekites. So we felt, oh, Samuel, God, that we would bring them to our camp and then set up an altar and then sacrifice them to our God. And then you would be pleased because at the end, I'm giving to the Lord. And Samuel is going to teach him something very important about giving. And then he says, okay, and why is King Agag still alive? Well, I figured that we could get some information from King Agag, and we could use him, and we could do it. And then Samuel looks at him and says, let me ask you a question. I saw that you want to give an offering to the Lord, but what is better, for you to give to God or for you to be obedient to God? Because what happened with Samuel was he thought that I could live in disobedience and yet come before his presence and just give to him. 
And what Samuel was teaching them was, your giving is a witchcraft if your obedience is not right. And I start to think about that and I say, well, what does that say about me and you and us and everyone in here and everyone that calls themselves Christians? Do we come to church and give and yet our life is a walk of disobedience? Do not get mad at me and do not talk bad about me. The Lord says that your sin and your, and your giving is that of witchcraft. That's powerful. Your disobedience is that. A rebellion is that of, of uh, what, 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 is, what is it that he says? I'll, I'll go to it right now. He, not only does he say witchcraft, he says another word. Does anyone have it open there? I just went blank. But he says something powerful. <clears throat> I have the, the verse here. Listen to this. Yeah, say that again. That's it. Like idolatry. Your disobedience is like idolatry. So I look at, Saul, at King Saul's life and I said, wow, that's a strong thing that the Lord just told him. And now what happens to Saul? Well, let's go to, let's go to 1 Corinthians 16. And I think this is going to be special here today together. This just happened between Saul, the Amalekites, and everything that I just told you. And now we're going to follow up in chapter 16. Everyone look at verse 14 with me. It says this. Now the spirit of the Lord had what? Had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with what? Depression and with fear. I'm reading from the NLT right there. You see, I want you to see, it's very easy to say, God, why would I allow this? But it's so easy to put always the blame on God. How many of you read this and you say, God, why would he allow this? Rather than saying, gosh, why would Saul be disobedient? You see, we easily put the blame on God and we forget to read that verse 14 has actually nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with Saul's disobedience that caused God's allowance of that tormenting spirit upon Saul's life. In verse 14, it says that the Lord sent a tormenting spirit a, 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 another translation might call it a harmful spirit. The Hebrew word there maybe describes some sort of mental anguish or even just a general sense of evil and calamity upon King Saul. But what I want you to understand as we read this in English and whatever translation you're reading it from, the Lord sending this spirit to Saul, sometimes when you read it, it, it doesn't seem to translate properly because God doesn't do evil. God is not into performing evil. So when you read this phrase, when you read this sentence, it's not necessarily that God is doing evil, but what he is doing is he's allowing this tormenting, this harmful evil agent to have his way on Saul. And the result of God stepping out of the way and not getting involved is this. The result is severe mental anguish upon Saul. That's so special because if you read verse 13, King David just got anointed for a, for a position that he yet was not going to fulfill. The verse right above says that he was anointed as the next king of Israel and then the spirit of the Lord came upon him on that day. When the spirit of the Lord is coming upon David, there's a king of Israel called Saul and the spirit of the Lord is leaving him. There's going to be a transfer of power here in Israel very soon. 
And the transfer of power will be for the, for the, for the one thing that the Spirit of the Lord has left him and how it's fallen upon them. It's fallen upon this guy and his group and this one I'm going to have to push away. And it's nothing more than just because he decided to live and walk in disobedience. Amen? So, so this is important to, to recognize this and to see Saul's life and how it went sour. Because remember how I started describing Saul. Remember what I said about him. It's not because God is bad. But it's because Saul decided to continue to sin against God. And Saul continued to attempt to govern without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And God wasn't going to honor that. How many times have we read in this church that, and we read here on Sundays, that God will not be mocked. And Saul was not going to wave the banner of the God of Israel and mock his name while, while not living in obedience. So Saul had to be confronted with this. And it says here that now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. That is the scariest part of this passage. The scariest part of Saul's life is that the spirit of the Lord has left him. The scariest thing that could happen to me is that the spirit of the Lord is taken off my life. And hopefully you feel the same way. Hopefully you're in the same page as I am. And, and specifically for Saul, I want you to understand this. This is a consequence. His life now, it's, this, it's a judgment of his sin and a consequence of his turning against the Lord. See, what we see now from Saul, if, from, from 1 Samuel 16, I'm not lying, if you continue to read the life of Saul until his death, you'll recognize that it's a drastic change in his life. You feel like, who is this man? He's not the same Saul that I've read about in these chapters. He's a whole different man. From this moment forward, you read of him, you read of his words, you read of his actions, and it's as if Saul is someone totally different. It says in verse 14 that when the Spirit of the Lord left him, he was filled with depression and he was filled with fear. The message translation, Eugene Peterson puts it this way, it says that a black mood settled on him and Saul was terrified. He had the favor of God, the cloud of God over his life. And from one instant to another, a black mood settled upon him. Blackness covered him. Darkness covered him. What we see in this verse 14 is that Saul's life has drastically changed. And I would dare to even say that from this moment forward, he suffered from a severe, if you read the passages of scripture, you'll see that he suffered from a severe mental condition. I believe that. He suffered from mental illness for the rest of his life. Saul suffered from that. We could talk about other kings too, right? Like Nebuchadnezzar and stuff like that. I mean, I'm talking about kings with power and then they're on the floor and they're acting like animals. Literal wild beasts on the floor because of their sin. And, and here is Saul, and now he's engulfed with this black mood, with this cloud around him, with this spirit of calamity over him. And now his thoughts are not of God anymore. Saul begins to think outside of God. And the moment that we don't give God his reign and his rule over our lives, here's Saul thinking outside of God's thoughts. And guess what happens as Saul does this? The enemy has his way with his thoughts. Oh, cool, you're not thinking like God. Awesome, now I'm going to have way with your thoughts. And the thought process in Saul's life changes forever to the point of his death. His thoughts were no longer God's. Come on, I really want you to do a self-examination. Are your thoughts of God? 
If they're not, the enemy may be having a hold on your mind. I speak of Saul right here specifically, and I can tell you that Saul brought this on himself. And why do I say that? Because he rejected the Spirit's leading over his life. And he chose disobedience over obedience. You guys understand, hopefully, in this part of your walk already, that God's called you to live obedient, right? And here's Saul, and he understood that. And he chose disobedience. And he brought this upon himself. To the point, I'm going to repeat what I just shared with you. That when he does not destroy the Amalekites' camp, Samuel has to tell this to Saul. I'm going to repeat it. Ready? Because of his disobedience towards the Amalekites and King Agag, and towards God, forgive me. Look what Samuel tells him. I'll read it one more time. This is in verse 22 of chapter 15. It says, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord. Look what he says. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. How many of you have sacrificed things for God? Amen. But your sacrifice will never and is never greater than your obedience. Your sacrifice is through obedience. But if you sacrifice from the place where it's not necessarily obedience, it's not great at all. It's just you sacrificed. To obey is greater than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of the rams. Verse 23, for rebellion, maybe you feel like in your rebellious state. Maybe your mind is at a rebellious state. Maybe the core of your being is at a rebellious state. You know what that looks like and what that sounds like and what that is in your life. Everything about Christianity, about God, about his word, about the people of God, there's just rebellion in your mind and in your heart. I love you, but I want you to know that it's a sin of witchcraft. It's not God's heart. And that's what Samuel is telling him. It's as stubbornness as the iniquity of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. And look what Samuel tells Saul. He also has rejected you now from being king. Can you imagine being Saul on that day? Dang, you kind of hit me hard, man. Like grace. So this evil, this sin, it brought forth mental anguish. And Samuel compares this rebellion, this obedience to the sin of witchcraft, his stubbornness as idolatry. And Samuel, for the rest of his life until death, suffers from, if you look at his life, I'm not lying to you, he suffers from paranoia. Come on, you're paranoid in this room? Paranoia is not from God. And God wants to love you and heal you from this. And he suffers from paranoia. Do you know what it is to grab the husband of your daughter, knowing that you can leave your daughter a widow? And still desire to kill him. And on multiple attempts you try to kill the husband of your daughter. That your daughter has to go behind your back to hide her husband. Because her father wants to kill her husband. Paranoia. That's not the spirit of the Lord upon Paul, Saul's life anymore. For the rest of his life he suffers from paranoia. He suffers from jealousy. He suffers from hatred. He suffers from bitterness. And I promise you, paranoia, hatred, bitterness, jealousies, all these things that we could describe in Saul's life, it all came from the place of his thoughts in his mind. He would look at David, who the Bible says he loved, and in an instant, he went from loving him to hating him. The man who would hold his cup for him before he drank was now the man that he was out to kill with wrath. All because the man called Saul put things in his head that were not true and not a reality. 
Man, I'm telling you that your mind is a beautiful thing. But your mind outside of God's thoughts and outside of God's carving is a very dangerous thing. From that place, it releases signals that your tongue could speak. And out of your tongue releases death or life. You could murder someone with your tongue and destroy their reputation and it could be false and you still destroy them. Or you could speak to them on his dying and with your tongue give them life and they could resurrect. All because of the power of your tongue that is being released from the thoughts of your mind. Your mind is a powerful thing. But it's in who is in control of that mind and what you do with it. Saul instead gave it to the flesh, gave it to the enemy. And if you struggle with bitterness and if you struggle with hatred and you struggle with jealousy and you struggle with all these and, and there's always this little thing in your heart and your mind, your issue is a serious issue. Just like I can tell you, I know what this feels like. And at the end of the day, we have to come face to face with this and say, what have I not given to the Lord? Are my thoughts of his or does the enemy have a way of it? It's like witchcraft. When you start want to grab... When you want to start grabbing the husband of your daughter and to kill him, that's the sin of witchcraft. You're crazy. You're going to leave your daughter. You're going to leave your daughter without a husband. You, Saul wasn't thinking right. You think he thought about that? My, my grandchildren won't have a father. But he was so tormented in the mind that he was willing that his grandchildren would not have a dad. That's crazy thinking. And it's because his mind wasn't right. His mind wasn't well. He, listen, back to the beginning, ready? Saul was a respected man, a reputable man. Saul was good looking, tall, warrior. I mean, they wrote songs about Saul. Saul was loved, he was favored, he was chosen, he was anointed to be the first king of Israel. But now, everyone say now. Right, he's tormented, he's terrified, he's depressed. Everyone starts a race, but not everyone finishes. Saul started his race well, but at the end of his life, he was tormented, depressed, and his mind was a mess at the end of the race. He couldn't finish what he started. Does everyone understand Saul's life? I want to come back to this because I've recognized, I want to come back to Saul's life before we end, or as we end, better said. But I want to take a little left turn from Saul for a moment and David. You see, I've recognized that Almost every meeting or every other meeting, but is some place it leads to anxiety. Some place it leads to our minds that I'm having with people, whether in this church or outside this church. There's so many struggles. And then I could relate to certain things myself. And I, so I started to look up things like, man, what, what's up with anxiety and, and everyone's suffering from anxiety? And I realized these things, right, that, that there's so many forms and there's so many different avenues and branches of it. But there's three known anxieties that you can look up. And I'm not making this stuff up. You'll probably find it exactly how I read it because I did not find this on myself. I researched this. And, and there's an anxiety disorder. There's another one called generalized anxiety disorder called GAD. There's another one called social anxiety disorder, which we get the SAD acronym. And anxiety disorder, we all know it's a mental health issue. And, and what happens is it causes you to have feelings of worry, anxiety, fear, and interferes with your daily activities. And maybe you could relate to anxiety interfering with your daily life. What shocked me about this was that it's very common in the United States. How common is it? Over 3 million cases in the United States. And those are just the people that have been told they have anxiety disorder. Imagine the other ones that have not gotten proper counsel on it or whatnot. They, they, because of these anxiety disorders, people have panic attacks, attacks, obsessive compulsive disorders, post-traumatic stress disorders. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's inability to set aside a worry or restlessness. Then, then you look into GAD, generalized anxiety disorder. It's a step above it. It's a little bit more extreme. 
It's also it's severe, it's now more severe. It's an ongoing anxiety. It continues to interfere your daily activities, just like regular anxiety disorder. And the same thing, over 3 million people suffer from this one as well. So we've already touched 6 million of the United States population. It occurs at any age. It could be for a short period of time or it could be lifelong for the rest of your life. You could suffer from this anxiety. Panic disorder, same thing. Compulsive disorder, obsessive compulsive. All the, all, all the kinds of types of anxiety. Constant worry, restlessness, trouble with concentration. Maybe you could relate to some of these things. And there's all kinds of treatment that professionals give people like this. They give you medications. They give you antidepressants. They give you certain counseling. All these different things. I'm not going to talk about all those things because I do believe that the Bible says he is also our great counselor. So I want to just come before a great counselor today. And then you have the social anxiety disorder. And this one's very severe now. This one's also called social phobia. Maybe Saul had this one. Social phobia. It was, it's a chronic mental health condition in which social interactions cause irrational anxiety. It's said to be common as well. This one has more than 200,000 registered people in the United States per year. It could last for years or it could also be lifelong. Listen to this one. SAD, sad, right? With social anxiety disorder, everyday social interactions cause irrational anxiety, fear, self-consciousness, embarrassment. Symptoms include excess fear of situations in which one may be judged, worry about embarrassment, humiliation, concern about offending someone. And then, again, they're given all these medications and, and counseling and all these things. I mean, this is what our world, what our states, the United, our country is looking into. It's an epidemic of anxiety that we're living in. So what did I do? Just to be fun and interested in this stuff, what I did was on Google, I typed anxiety. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I copied and pasted the seven, to the seven topics that came up or the seven websites. Number one, why are panic attacks and anxieties increasing in America? Number two, America really is in the midst of a rising anxiety epidemic. Number three, America's new anxiety disorder. Number four, more Americans suffering from stress, anxiety, and depression. Number five, almost 40% of Americans are becoming more anxious. Number six, the anxiety epidemic. Number seven, anxiety and depression are on an 80-year upswing. I'm like, what in the world is happening? And I would say that we have a problem in our country. I would say people are more stressed out than ever before. You live in Miami, you just go out in traffic and you recognize it. I mean, when that light turns green, if you don't press the gas automatically, the fingers, people are sticking the middle finger at you, people are beeping at you, and you're like, it just turned green. And they're pushing over you, you know why you... And I won't do it because God forbid if I stick the middle finger in the, on the platform. But, and you're like, relax, man. It's 7 in the morning, 8 in the morning. People are tense. Coffee spilling all over them. In a hurry. I would say we have a problem in our country, but we also, I believe this, have a problem in our church. For example, if there is more than, in the, not speaking about depression for a moment, if there are more than 19 million people in the United States suffering from depression, listen to this. If there are over 19 million people in the United States registered suffering from depression, I'm sure that Christians are included in that number. What do you, what do you, what do you mean, that 19 million are all outside of the church? Some of you register well with this and you know exactly what I'm talking about. So then I said, let me continue to look into this. This stuff gets crazy. Watch this. I'll get into the word now, but watch this. Celebrities by the number. I, could, I can't even tell you how many celebrities I found that suffer from depression anxiety on a daily basis. So I said, let me just pick some famous names that they would know. And this is good not to talk bad about them, but maybe you, you're led to pray for them. 
admitting to these things. Ken, Kendall Jenner says, I have, so, I have such debil, debil, debilitating anxiety because of everything going on that I literally wake up in the middle of the night with full-on panic attacks. Adele tells Vanity Fair, I can slip in and out of depression quite easily. Dakota Johnson says, sometimes I panic to the point where I don't even know what I'm thinking or I'm doing. I, I have full anxiety attacks and, and I have them all the time anyway. And when I, when I audition, it's really bad. I'm so terrified all the time. Carrie Fisher, the star from, from Star Wars, she, she passed away and a lot of this could have been the cause of it. He says, I have a chemical imbalance that in the most extreme state will lead me to a mental hospital. She said this in an interview to Dan Sawyer. I used to think that I was a drug addict, pure and simple, just someone who could not stop taking drugs willfully, and I was that, but it turns out that I am severely, I am a severely manic depressive. Where were the people to help them? Prince Harry just saw his wedding. I spent most of my life saying I'm fine. He tells this to a, to a journalist from the Telegraph. He says, Prince Harry um, says, I spent most of my time, it's most of my life saying that I'm fine. I can safely say that losing my mom at the age of 12 and therefore shutting down all of my emotions for the last 20 years has had a quite serious effect on not only my personal life but also my work as well. I have probably been very close to a complete breakdown on numerous occasions. Many more. Demi Lovato, look what just happened to her still fighting for her life. And her depressions and her drug use. Khloe Kardashian, another one that has been very open about anxiety and depression. Uh, a famous one is a player from the Cleveland Cavaliers that recently started to release statements as a first athlete to release statements like this about chemical or mental imbalances in his brain. And Kevin Love opens up not that long ago about mental health and panic attacks. In the middle of a game, he had to run out of the game in the third quarter and run to the locker room. And, and he says that he was lost. He went into a black room and he didn't even know where he was at. They had to get him and take him to the locker room. And he was weeping and he couldn't control. This is an NBA player. An NBA player. And he was filled with panic attacks in the middle of a game. This week, DeMar DeRozan, who just got traded to the San Antonio Spurs, another basketball player, he was vocal about his issues as well. And he released many comments through social media and through interviews throughout the last two weeks. And look at one of the things that he says, ready? People say, what are you depressed about? You can buy anything you want. And he says, I wish everyone in this world was rich so that they would realize that money isn't everything. What good is it to gain the whole world, but at the end you lose yourself? I'm telling you that these are just a few people. And then in this room, I'm sure there's a, a few people. And I can relate to this. You know, what's special about this word today is that on Wednesday, I said, this whole day, I'm, I'm going to just spend time in the word. And as I started to look up stuff, it was so crazy. I had already felt a little heavy throughout the weekend and coming into Monday and Tuesday. And I said, this is awkward. And I, I've, lear I've learned to, to give it to the Lord. And, and the Lord has really taken me to a beautiful place in the midst of my, my thoughts and in my mind. I've shared very uh, openly to our church that my greatest weakness in my life Though there are many, but my greatest weakness is my mind. I've said that very, very openly, nothing to hide before you guys. So my mind started to have a run for it on Wednesday to the point where I couldn't even read the letters on my screen, to the point where I felt so heavy I couldn't even breathe, to the point where I was just like, oh, my God. And every thought and every worry came upon me where the Lord says, shut it down. I had to shut down my computer. I had to close my Bible. I went to Alexa, and I said, hey, Alexa. I told her to play some loud Christian music. 
I blasted the music. My daughter has a foldable little couch, and I got right on my knees on her couch. And I just started declaring and worshiping and honoring and giving thanks to our God. And I said to people on Wednesday when I saw them, I said, you know what's special about that? If that right there takes me to the place of that, then all of that was worth it to get to that place to encounter that great love. You see, because what I've learned is that at that moment, I could do one or two things. I could give in to those thoughts and I could give it into that anxiety and then it will cripple me like it has in the past. Or I could get on my knees and I could start worshiping around my house and worshiping around wherever I'm at until I am released from the burden of that anxiety and I receive victory yet again in my life in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> and I could tell you that, that Wednesday was a heavy day. Thursday was a heavy day until Friday I had a lot of headaches, a lot of headaches, a lot of headaches. All because of what happened to me on Wednesday. I was still suffering Thursday and Friday with my headaches. My brain was just, I was like, God, the week that I'm going to share on anxiety and stuff, you know, and God just has a way of doing stuff. But I know exactly, I'm not a chronic, um, I'm not a, an individual who suffers from the chronic anxiety or whatnot, but, but in some cases I have had multiple um, moments in my life where it's been very harsh on me. And, and the reality is, until God had to do a transforming work in my heart and in my mind, I didn't start seeing breakthrough and freedom from those things. You know what it is one day to have a whole day with your family and seeing your kids in the pool and having all your family having a barbecue and you're supposed to be having a good time but you can't. And then you come home and it's 7.30 p.m. and it's time to put the kids to sleep and everything's chill because the next day is school day. And I have to say to my wife, I'm going to go to bed. She said, it's only 7.30 p.m. And then I have to recognize, yeah, but I need to go to bed. I don't feel good. And I go to bed, and I throw the covers over me, and I'm like a baby in the fetus position. And she comes, she's like, what's wrong with you? The air's not even on. It's like on 76, and I'm shaking. I'm freezing. I'm like, I know I am sick. I don't feel good. Just go. She, Nancy, she brings me a thermometer. Check your temperature. <laughs> she takes it out. You don't have a fever. What's wrong with you? I'm like, she walks away. She starts to hear me cry. She looks at me. She says, what's wrong with you? And I said, I'm not sick. I said, I have anxiety. And my wife looks at me and says, what? How long? And I said, do you remember this day? Do you remember that day? And she's like, yeah, I just thought you were like bipolar. <laughs> that you're crazy. I was like, no. That's what happens. I shut down. I, I, I. But I thank God for days like that. And I thank God for that moment in my life. Because I promise you that those are the moments where I had to evaluate my spiritual walk. And I had to evaluate our ministry. And I had to recognize that the things that I was putting my energy and my effort to were not the things that God was really impressed with. I was offering a lot to God. But my life wasn't necessarily in obedience to God. There are eight men that I came back from South Carolina with, and with those eight men, I shared my heart with them. And I said, it's been so and so many months since this has happened. And I could tell you that I'm, from that conversation in that van coming back from South Carolina to Miami, I could say the same thing. I'm still in victory in a certain weakness in my life. But I will tell you, it took me to a place that I had to be shaking and in tears, and I couldn't even think right with anxiety for the Lord to say to me, your issue is not anything with your mind. It's everything with your heart. 
when my heart got right, and I'm not talking about the organ that's pumping blood. I'm talking about the center core of who I am. When that sucker got right, my mind started getting right. My breathing started getting better. When Wednesday came, I said, I've had bouts of anxiety, just like all of you have. When things happen at your job, when things happen with your kids, when things happen with your spouse, when things happen with your friends, when things happen in your life, you too get little bouts of anxiety. You get worried and you freak out and maybe you go through that and then you overcome it. And I've gone through many moments like that. That's, I think that's more normal than, what, than anything else. And I've learned, I've shared with you a couple, um, a couple months ago that I'm in my kitchen. Now that my wife knows and we're very open about this stuff, I'm in the kitchen and I'm just talking to myself. And you guys remember that story. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm having a conversation <laughs> with myself, with my mind. Me and my mind are just talking to each other. And she says, I hope they're good talks, being cute. <laughs> and then she realized when I told her, I said, yeah, and then she realized what I meant. And it's just crazy, man. You should see, I've turned awesomely crazy because I'm in my house and anxiety starts to rise up. And I'm not lying, man. I, I swear you, Lord, you know I'm not being hypocritical, but I'll blast music and in my house, I'm all alone there and I just start declaring things. Lord, I pray today. In the, I get Pentecostal, man. I get T.D. Jakes on, on steroids. <laughs> I pray today in the name of Jesus. These thoughts are not of you. You said this about that and I, and I start, I mean, finances, right? How, how are you going to pay for your, ah, the, my God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The streets that I walk on are streets of gold. What is $500 extra a month that my God can't pay? And I started, if you put a camera in my house, you'll be like, that guy's lost his mind. It's not that I've lost my mind. It's that I'm learning how to fight against the thoughts that are in my mind that are not of God. So... So what I could do is, what I could do is I could go into my room and I could crawl again like a baby and I could weep for my life and say, someone help me, I'm being destroyed. Or I could stand up and begin to proclaim the yes and amens of Jesus Christ because I've experienced his great love and his great grace over my life. And I'm telling you that his victory today and the victory that I experienced yesterday, I could still have it now and I can have it tomorrow. So when tomorrow comes and an attack comes, guess what? It will lose because of that love which is greater in me. I'm telling you, it's it's what you do with your thoughts when they're rampant. It's what you do with your life. When it's, are you going to be obedient to those thoughts or will you be obedient to his thoughts? Why? Because obedience is better than any sacrifice that you could give. Oh, but maybe if I just know, it's none of that. It's where is there disobedience? And walk into the obedience of the right thoughts of God. Man, I have so much more to say, so I have to get going. If not, we'll, we'll continue next week. But, but, but this is true because like Saul... And, and even some of the passages, if we have time, I'll read today. It, it, I brought it upon myself. Where I've listened to, listened to my confession. Where I've chosen not to trust. Where it's been difficult for me to trust. And it's been difficult for me to have faith. You know how many times God says, you better have faith in this. And I've walked in it without faith. And every time I've walked in it without faith, I have suffered from anxiety. But when I've walked through it in faith, I, I'm like, I win. 100% of the time, I win. Where, where I've chosen, chosen not to trust or it's been difficult to trust and not have faith. Where I've given, listen, thought and consideration to things that are not true. To the thoughts that are not reality. To words that don't even define me. Or I've even carried weight that wasn't even meant for me to carry. I'm, I'm talking about myself. I start listening to things or people. And I'm like, well, this is what they said. This is what he said. This is what she said. This is what, they, this is what they're doing. And the reality is that's not true over my life. 
And that's not real. How many of you are conquered by thoughts that if you really spend time thinking about them, those thoughts are not even reality, but they've conquered your mind. What do I think that is? I think that you've given those thoughts outside of God and the enemy is using them to try to destroy your life. Your own flesh is destroying your life. Because they're not reality. Words that you're believing for yourselves that don't define you. Weight that you carry that you're not even called to carry. I know what that feels like. So, so I can't look at my sack. Well, Lord, I pastor. And Lord, I'm faithful. And Lord, I'm there all the time. And Lord, when someone calls me, I'll pick up. And I'll try my best to meet with whoever needs to meet with me. But the truth is, I can't look at my sacrifices at what brings me joy and as what determines my love for him. I got to come from a great place of love. So then I pick up the phone and I have meetings and I have that. Not because I give my sacrifice, but it's because of a love that then I give my sacrifice. My sacrifice can't determine whether I love God or not. Many give sacrifices and offerings and they're far and distant from God. There was one time that Jesus was at the temple and people were dropping big checks. And Jesus says, do you see that woman? She gave less than a penny and she gave more than everyone else. Because obedience is greater than giving. And I thought that I was doing a good job. I was giving. I was meeting. I had leaders at my house every single month for dinner. That's going to change our church. And I had you guys over. All the time. And God says, oh, that's good. But none of it is good if it's not rooted in my love. If it's not rooted in my love. All of it is good, but it's not good if it's just sacrifice without love. And I had to really examine myself. I had to really see my walk and see the agendas of the things that I was doing. And I had to choose, will I be obedient? What will determine my love? Samuel told Saul, has the Lord great delight in offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Listen, in that obedience, in my obedience, even when it's difficult, obedience is hard sometimes. But even when it's difficult, may that be what brings me joy and what defines and determines my love for him. Why? Because you will always be obedient to that which you love. You'll be obedient to him. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. They're for pulling down strongholds. Listen, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And six, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. It's a fulfillment of obedience. To what? To punish disobedience. So what am I doing? Anxiety begins to rise and I have to punish disobedience. Why? Because I have to give my thoughts in obedience to Christ. And when that occurs, then he gives me the ability to punish all disobedience. But it has to come from that place. Any obedience towards another is because it's first rooted in love. True obedience. Not tyranny. That won't last long. But true obedience from true love. So I want us to begin at this place with our depressions and with our anxieties and with our mental problems. I don't want to use the word issues, but let's capture our thoughts that are not right. And let's call them according to what... It's called here in 2 Corinthians. Let's capture our thoughts that are rebellious thoughts because they're not his. And let's aim them towards the obedience of Christ. Let's aim them towards the obedience of Christ. Let, let me read another passage to kind of hit home with this stuff. In Philippians 4, 
it says this. I'm just going to read verse 6 and 7. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request, request be made known to God. The word anxious there, one way that the Greek defines it is this. Don't be troubled with cares. But I thought I was supposed to care. But your caring should never cause you to be troubled. The moment that your carings cause you to be troubled, you're doing it wrong. You're caring improperly. It's not healthy. Actually, you're being the God over the thing in which you're caring for. When I start to care for things and they're causing me to be troubled, it's because those things that I'm caring for, I'm probably not trusting God in those things. Or I'm, not, I'm probably not believing in God for those things. So, because I care for them so much, how many of you could relate to this? I'm forcing or I'm working in them with my own strength. And there comes a point in my own strength that guess what? This frail man, his weaknesses very quickly become manifested. And then I'm drowning in my weakness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Everyone say in everything. Yeah, that, that right there covers the whole chart. Everything. Not some things. Everything. All things. What do you do now? Prayer and supplication. I don't think I could pray that long. Well, learn how to in the spirit. Doesn't mean you need to close your eyes, kneel down, and put a nice little melody in the background so you could get into prayer. No, it's a prayer that is deep in your soul without ceasing. Pray and supplication in everything with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. Look at verse 7. Here is the promise. Here is the why. Everyone say the why. The why. Why all these things in verse 6? Because this, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, even the ones that you're not understanding in here. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding of your mind. Listen, will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. So Paul is showing us very articulately here. He's showing us a mind that becomes anxious for many things, for many things, for many things, for many things. And he says, be anxious now, watch this. You're anxious for many things, for many things. Be anxious, watch this, for nothing. Do you want to know what Paul is doing here? He's not giving you an excuse and he's not even opening the crack of the door to give you any kind of justification to be anxious for anything. So what does he say? Be anxious for what? Nothing. Right, but my child is sick. Nothing. But yeah, but I need a raise because I don't know how I'm going to pay the bill. Nothing. Yeah, but you see there was traffic on that road and I'm going to be late and I had to make a right and now I'm not nothing what are you called to be anxious for nothing do you care for things yes but those cares should never cause trouble because then that means God is not sitting on the throne of those cares nothing it should be in nothing and that's what Paul is showing us that in all things and in everything we should be in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and all of this is Lord let these requests be made known to you. What is that really saying? Lord, here it is. I can't carry it anyways. That's powerful, man. So, so that when our minds go off, when gloom enters, when the black mood settles, that we would wrestle and discipline our minds to not make anxiety an option. But instead, let's follow the scripture. In everything, giving it to prayer and to supplication from a place of thanksgiving. There's no way that you could be in a place of worry and still be thankful. In a place of thanksgiving, letting your request be made known to God. Man, when our minds go off, 
when the gloom enters, when the dark cloud comes, you wrestle and you discipline your mind. Your mind. Everyone say, my mind. Has it been given to you? Wow, that's sad. Has it been given to you? By your creator. By your creator. And you have dominion over it. You have to, no, my mind can't do that. Because God didn't create it to do that in me. I've allowed it to do stuff that God doesn't want it to do inside of me. What do you have to do every day? You wrestle and you discipline your mind. Find a place of thanksgiving. Find it there. And present it to the Lord. And the result of this is verse 7. And is this, that the peace of God... Maybe you haven't felt that in a while. Maybe you feel it in certain episodes of your life. But how many of you need to get to a place where you fully live day in and day out in the peace of God? Why is the peace of God so important? Because it surpasses all understanding. And it guards your heart and your minds through Christ Jesus. So what do I do then? What do you do? Well, we quickly what? Discipline and what? Wrestle with our mind. You want to know how you do it? We, kick, we quickly begin to meditate. And I'm not talking about going up to a mountain. I'm not talking about going to a park. I'm not talking about sitting a certain angle and putting your fingers a certain way and playing a certain music and doing certain stretches. I can make your time so much better. Watch this. <laughs> don't worry about doing all those things. Unless you find some sort of discipline in that, then I don't want to. So what do I do? I meditate on, the, on these things. On what things? On the right things. Can I read? I'm going to read a scripture to you. Watch this. In Philippians 4, I just read 6 and 7. So watch. And the peace of God surpasses all understanding, guards your heart and your mind through Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there. Paul continues and he says this. Ready? Because of everything that I just said in verse 6 and 7, every eye, look at verse 8. He says, finally, <laughs> finally, brothers and sisters, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are a good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 6 and 7 sounds good, but when 6 and 7 happens, where do you got to go to? This is the meditation place where you go to. You meditate on truth. You meditate on noble. You meditate on the things that are right, that are just, that are pure, that are lovely, the things that are of good report, the things that are praiseworthy, and every single one of those attributes is describing the person of Jesus Christ. So, so Paul is saying, meditate that through Christ, look at how he ends in verse 9, his peace which surpasses my understanding guards my heart and my mind. Meditate not on all things, but on these things. And these things are him, are his things. Tito shot me a text this week, and, and it blessed my life. He says, our tears are of one conquered in love, not overcome by circumstances. And that's powerful because there was moments, many were the moments that my tears were conquered and overcome by circumstances. But now when those circumstances arise, do you run to the place where your tears now are overcome by a love rather than the tears that are drowning you and overcome by the circumstance that you're facing. That's two totally different steps of obedience that you'll take. What are you obedient to? Let, let's go back. I'm not going to go to this because I'm going to drive you nuts if I go to this. But Jesus told Martha one day. Remember Martha and Mary? 
Martha, you're anxious. He told her you're anxious. You know why? Martha was doing a lot. And she says, Martha, you're anxious about so many things. Listen. Because unlike your sister Mary, you're conquered. Listen to that. It's so important. Martha, you're anxious about so many things. She's pointing at her sister because unlike her sister Mary, she wasn't conquered in love. Instead, overwhelmed and conquered by her circumstances. I'm all alone in giving, offering, and sacrifices. And Jesus says, and she's all alone basking in my love. I want you to understand that Martha got to a place of anxiety. And Mary was in a place of his love. The greatest thing that happens and should happen to any of us, and it's happening to me now, is that when this anxiety strikes, I know where to go. Listen, I cry now, and I cry a lot lately, and I love it, and I don't want to stop crying. I pray in the spirit more, and I don't want to stop that. It's weird, actually. I align my thoughts with his, and I align my thoughts with his word more now. And what I'm doing more often now is I'm running to his presence in the midst of whatever I'm going through. So I wrote this down because this is a true testimony in my life. I will not settle for tears on a pillow lost not knowing where to go. But I will settle for tears at his feet calling it home where I'm found, rescued, and I'm finding joy. That's the difference with what you do with your thoughts. Be anxious for what? For what? Does that sound familiar to you? Yes or no? It does. Who do you think Paul was echoing when he said that? Be anxious for nothing. Who was he echoing? You think he came up with that himself? Where do you think he heard that from? Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34, Jesus is speaking to the crowd. He says this, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your lifespan? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But yet I tell you, even Solomon and all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these but if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven will he not much more clothe you O you of little faith therefore do not be anxious saying what shall we eat what shall we drink what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added to you therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious about itself sufficient for the day of its own trouble Jesus preached that word Jesus said that what a powerful I would have loved to have been there when Jesus said that it's the same Greek word that Paul uses in Philippians 4 when he talks about anxious don't be troubled with cares don't worry well, um, I think it was the ESV commentary, but it says this. If one makes the right choices according to verses 19 to 24, which you don't have time to read today, there is no reason that we should be anxious because Jesus gives two how much more examples. He says this, look at the birds, how much more? Consider the lilies, how much more? And it's doing this to show that since God cares even for the birds and the lilies, how much more will he care for his own to be anxious then demonstrates a lack of trust in God who promises that he will graciously care for all these things. Man, 
So what does verse 33 tell us? Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Then things will be added to you. Don't get to a place where your mind is conquering you. The moment that you do that, you stop seeking first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Meditate. Everyone say meditate. On these things. On everything that is pure, that is lovely, that is praiseworthy. That which is true. Meditate on these things, the author writes. In Romans 8, 31 and 32, Paul says, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The church always goes crazy with that verse. But he who, did, he who did not spare his own son, but he delivered Jesus up for us all, how shall he not with Jesus also freely give us all things? Do you think the cross was in vain? No. Be anxious for nothing. Why? The cross was real. The resurrection was real. For what? So that you don't have to continue and I don't have to continue to suffer from depression and anxiety and other mental things that I need to take medication on. There is a healing power in the blood. We sang it today in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs> Romans says that. Romans 5. Um, the worship team could come up. In Romans 5, I'm going to read it quickly, but I can't. You cannot miss the words, Romans 5, he writes this. I'll start off in verse 16 for the sake of it. He says, for because of one transgression, we all are facing a death sentence with a verdict of guilty. Yes or no? But this gracious gift leaves us from our many failures and brings us into the perfect righteousness of God. Acquitted with the words, God speaks over us, not guilty. <laughs> Guys, verse 17 is vital as we close. Death once held us in its grip. And by the blunder of one man, death reigned as king over humanity through one man, Adam. But now how much more are we held in the grip of grace and continue reigning as these kings in life? Enjoying our regal freedom through the gift of perfect righteousness in the one and only Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the next Adam. So I was once gripped by this ongoing death, but now I am gripped by your grace in which I now reign as a king in his kingdom. In other words, just as condemnation came upon all people through one transgression, so through one righteous act of Jesus' sacrifice, the perfect righteousness that makes us right with God and leads us to a victorious life is now available to us all. One man's disobedience opened the door for all humanity to become sinners. So also one man's obedience, disobedience versus obedience, so one man's obedience opened the door for many to be made perfectly righteous, right with God and acceptable to him. Verse 20. So then the law was introduced into God's plan to bring the reality of human sinfulness out of hiding. And yet wherever sin increased, there was more than enough of God's grace to triumph. And just as sin reigned through death, so also the sin-conquering grace will reign as king through righteousness, imparting eternal life through Jesus Christ the Messiah. I summarized it like this. There is a sin-conquering grace that wants to take us to a place where we reign in his righteousness, giving us life eternal, life abundant. And I think that's powerful. So I'm not gripped by death. And I'm going to be very honest with you. I'm not gripped by the thoughts of death in my mind. Because it no longer has a grip on my mind. But now, how much more have I been held in the grip of a continual grace over my life?
something else needs to grip you today. So we come to Saul's life, and Saul is in anguish. And David gets anointed king. And Saul's a mess. Saul is a disaster. And I want to read to you what happens with Saul's life. It says, now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Some of Saul's servants said to him, listen to this. A tormenting spirit is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp. If you study the harp, the harp was an instrument of worship in God's house. So if you really want to look at this in this proper translation, do you want to know what Saul's men were saying? Let me bring a worshiper in the house. Ain't nothing that worshiping the one won't solve and won't answer. Sometimes, you know, we don't see the, the message within the verses. He says this, let us, they say, let us find a good musician to play the harp. Whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you, listen to this. He will play soothing music, worship music. Kind of like what I did on Wednesday. And you will soon be well again. So one of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. He's a great worshiper. Not only that, listen, listen to how they describe him. He's a brave warrior. He's a man of war. You're going to love him. He has good judgment. He's got his, what does he say? He's got his head on his shoulder. He's a, he's a fine, you know, he's a king, so you want to have good-looking people around you. You know, when you're at that level, only good-looking people hang around you. He's a good-looking man, too, Saul. But this is the greatest attribute that they could mention about David. It wasn't that he was a warrior, man of valor, that he was a great worshiper, heart player, fine looking, but it's this. And Saul, the Lord is with him. See, because what Saul needed in his life was not a good looking person. What Saul needed in his life was not even, I'm going to be very honest with you, not even a good worshiper. What Saul needed in his life was not a brave warrior. Because some of these great attributes are the very things that Saul's mind are going to cause Saul to be jealous and bitter and angry towards that man. Wow, he sings better than I do. He plays better than I do. He fights better than I do. People love him more than But the greatest thing about David was that the Lord was with him. Look at verse 19. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse's house to say, send me your son David, the shepherd. Pastor Leo shared a message on shepherd. Hopefully you guys, but man, nothing good in shepherding. Very lowly position. So bring, bring the rascal over here. So Jesse responded by sending David to Saul along with young goat and a donkey loaded with bread and wineskin of full wine. So David went to Saul and began serving him. Man, I, I, I have to hold myself because there's so much that I want to preach on. So David went to Saul and began serving him. And Saul loved David very much. Not in the next chapter. And he began serving him. And, oh, sorry, and David became his armor bearer. Saul loved him very much and David became his Verse 22, then Saul sent word to Jesse, says, please let David remain in my service. Let him live in my palace. Let, well, in that time, let him live within my tents. For I am very pleased with David. Verse 23 is the key part of this verse, of this passage right now that I'm going to read. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp and Saul would feel better and the tormenting spirit would go away. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we close, but 
Let this sit on you for a moment. David walks into a room. He begins to play the harp. And I'm thinking he begins to sing some sort of Hebrew song to his God. And as he plays, this man who the Lord was with, it says whenever the Spirit troubled him, it says David would play a little bit more light. Amen. And David would play. But you know when I read that, you know what I wrote down in my notes? It says, whenever it troubled Saul, David would play. Isn't that weird? Whenever it troubled Saul, David would play. It's almost like whenever it troubles you, you call me. It's almost like whenever it troubles you, you call her. Whenever it troubled Saul, David played. So I started to think, I said, what happens if Saul would have started playing? And he would have said, David would have walked in, sir, I heard you groaning. He says, I got this one, David. I wonder what would have happened to Saul. But Saul was at such a place where he had to count on someone else to do the job that I feel as I read that that God was calling Saul to do in the beginning. And that is, stop trying to find it, your comfort through the gifting or through the glory or through my presence being in someone else. And Saul, pick up your instrument on your own and get back to the place where my presence can be with you. But he never did that. Even at the end, he was still being disobedient. What would have happened if he would have picked up the instrument on his own? That whenever it troubles you, that we don't wait for someone else to play the part. But instead, from going forward now, you pick up the instrument and you play the part. And let your life be worshipped unto the Lord. And you experience breakthrough and freedom in your struggle. Because you learn how to pick up the instrument through your pain. Through your pain, you picked it up. I don't feel like it, but I'm going to swipe the guitar today. I don't feel like it, but I'm going to put up Alexa today. I don't feel like it, but I'm going to pound on the devil's head today. At that moment on Wednesday, I couldn't call not one person. Though I could have called 15 people. I couldn't call one person. At that moment, God says, in your pain, pick up your instrument and begin to give me worship because you know that I love you. What would have happened if I would have called David to come in? David, come to my house and play music for me. As soon as David would have left, I probably would have entered into it again. So we need to get to a place that when that happens, we pick up the instrument and we don't wait for someone else to play the part. Though praise God for the people in our lives that do play the part. Amen? But we don't necessarily need them for other things. There are some things in our lives where God wants you to experience the breakthrough and the freedom and the healing of even your mind. But it's got to come from your own pain and in your own pain deciding whether I'll be disobedient this time or obedient. I'm going to pick obedient. I'm going to pick up the instrument in my pain and I'm going to release a sound until the breakthrough is released over my life. It's got to come from you. It's got to come from you. It's got to come from you. And the Lord will take you to see whether you'll be obedient in worship because you really love him.
or you'll hope that someone else's love for God will be enough to fall upon you. That is so immature of any of us to do that for yourself and to the other person. You gotta get to a point where it's this right here that the Lord takes you to see, I just wanna see if you're gonna be obedient or disobedient in this one. Saul's ailment would have become better but instead he got close to the person of God. When I don't think God was actually calling Saul to get close to the person of him. I think God wanted Saul to get close to him. Saul's ailment would have become better when he was in proximity to God. And he gets close to the person of God, David in this case, and he gets better for a moment. But if Saul would have started playing on his own and getting close to God, I don't believe at all. I think Saul's life would have changed because God is gracious even in the Old Testament. And I don't think Saul would have ever needed David to play again. And his own worship and his own obedience would have made him well. And I think God would have healed him from his mental anguish. But instead, David, I want you to do in my life, for my life, that which I don't even have faith in myself to do. No, find it in the Lord. Pick up the instrument in the pain and see what God can do in you didn't get Saul too far. I want you just to close your eyes there for a moment. You know who you are and you know where you're at in life. We're going to close up. But what I want you to do is I want you to recognize if you've been gripped by anxiety, by fear, if you've been gripped by depression, if you've been gripped by some sort of mental condition that you can't give it weight and glory anymore. That you want to say, Lord, take me to a place of deeper and greater love that when the pain comes, I know what I need to do to pick up the instrument just to worship you and be lost in your love, that my tears would be overwhelmed and overcome by love, not necessarily by my circumstances anymore. And that's me. If that's you today, I, I want you to take a step of faith and right there where you're at, say, that's me, Lord. I, I need healing. I want restoration. We're, we're going to sing a quick song real quick before the Lord. And If you want to come up to this, I don't want to force any of you. I, you know whether you're called to be obedient. If you want to come up here and have victory in these things and, and I'm believing for greater victory in the days to come and I'm praying for greater love in the days to come. And I want to just touch you real quick and say, Lord, so be it. Let the step of obedience, Lord, let, let, let her, let, Lord, let them, let him, Lord, let, let him pick up his instrument in the midst of pain and worship you and let there be healing today over his mind, over his heart. Let the peace of God surpass all understanding. So as we sing a song to him, if you feel like you need to come up here because you know this is you, come up. If not, we're going to close up in prayer. But if don't even hesitate. Say, I need my mind. I need my tears. I need it all to come from a place of love, of obedience. I need to be done with this stuff. I need to be gripped in him. No longer gripped in fear and in depression and in anxiety. Come on, let's just, let's just worship him from